Hi, my name's Samuel Finlay, and you're listening to the ACES Podcast. In today's episode, I chat with Dr. Matthew Griffith. Matthew is a researcher now based at the University of Sydney after a journey that has taken him around Australia and even to Japan. He's a University of Wollongong graduate completing a PhD in physical chemistry and device physics. He is an avid marathon runner and even has his eyes set on completing an ultra marathon. We talk about all that and more. So without further ado, let's get to the podcast and my chat with Matthew. So I'm chatting with Dr. Matthew Griffith on today's podcast. Matthew, thanks for joining me. No problems. Thank you for having me, Sam. It's a pleasure. And we were actually supposed to do this podcast face-to-face a number of weeks ago. Unfortunately, we couldn't due to the COVID situations. You were going to give a seminar at ACES headquarters. How are things with you? I'm working from home, I'm assuming. Yes, yes, as we all are, doing our best to manage working remotely recently. Um, Fortunately for me, I'm quite functional from home at the moment. Um, So the research is ticking along and all the research management is ticking along. So we're managing quite well at the moment, which is great. Okay, great, great. And um, you're at the University of Sydney right now. Are are the labs still open at all there or are they completely closed? The labs are open for research staff on a... um, on a needs basis. So if you need to do things urgently, you can still access the labs, but the university is recommending we stay away from the labs where possible. PhD, um, which you completed at the University of Wollongong. How was that experience? What did you do and who were your supervisors? Uh, Look, I had a fantastic experience overall at the University of Wollongong. So I did my undergraduate degree there as well. That's where I really got introduced to this field of nanotechnology. Uh, so it was Will Spinks, uh, Jeff Spinks, sorry, and um, Will Price at the time invented this new undergraduate degree in this burgeoning field of nanotechnology, which I'd never heard of before. Uh, but they, they gave me this sort of famous paper by Richard Feynman back way back in the 60s. There's plenty of room at the bottom. And I guess that really sparked a passion for working in this field and viewing and manipulating atomic structure um, to control the world around us. Uh, And as as it turned out, both Will and Jeff had really strong links with Gordon's group, uh, IPRI, at the time. And Gordon approached me about doing an honours project with him in this area of uh, solar cells. So linking up this field of nanotechnology to climate change, which was back then just starting to become really Um, well-known in the public sphere as a problem that we were going to have to address. Um, And I had a fantastic experience throughout honours. The work itself on these new types of solar cells was quite interesting. Um, But more importantly, I was really impressed by the ACES environment. I was really highly collegiate, met a lot of friends, both students, postdocs, research staff, and interacting with global experts who were very passionate about what they did. Uh, So when the chance to continue this work through to my PhD popped up, I took it with both hands and I've never really looked back. Great. And are you originally from Wollongong? No, I'm actually, well, I've moved around a little. I was born in Sydney and I did the first decade of my life in Sydney. And then we moved to the country. So I actually associate with being a country boy. I did the next decade of my life in Orange. Uh, And then for university, I moved down to Wollongong um, to do some of their science and nanotechnology degrees because at the time, they're actually the only university in Australia that was offering this nanotechnology degree. 
Right. And so you always sort of wanted to do a PhD or that was just something that evolved over time um, during your undergraduate degree? I would say it definitely evolved over time. Um, perhaps coming towards the end of my undergraduate degree and being a little bit daunted by the prospect of going out and finding a job, when somebody that you've worked with for the last year comes to you and says, we will pay you to keep doing this work that you're really passionate about, it really becomes quite an easy choice from that point onwards. But I wouldn't say I always dreamed about doing a PhD, but from about third year undergraduate through to honours, I had a fairly good idea that this was this research career was something that I wanted to embark upon. Okay, and after your PhD, uh, I understand you moved over to Japan for a year to work as a as a re- in research there. How did that opportunity present itself? Um, it actually started through ASIS. So there was a, when Kevin Rudd was the prime minister at the time. I think uh, this, this is going back quite. Yeah. A while. He had this real drive for scientific innovation and he wanted Australia to be leaders across a range of uh, different scientific activities. And so he started up a scholarship program for PhD students. The program was actually really fantastically generous. So it paid your tuition for an overseas university for 12 months. It paid all your moving costs and it paid you a stipend while you were over there to do this research. Um, And so based off some of the success that I'd had to date in my PhD at ACES and some of the links through staff members there at ACES with a particular supervisor in Japan, Professor Shogo Mori, I actually applied for this program and was successful in getting a grant to go to Japan and complete 12 months of my PhD in this Japanese laboratories working on the project that I'd started in my time at ACES. So that's how the link developed. Uh, and then after I graduated from the PhD, I was fortunate enough to have made enough of an impression on Professor Mori, and he actually invited me back as a permanent postdoc staff member. Great. And what type of thing were you doing over there? Uh, so I was taking it a step further than the sort of solar cell systems that I'd looked at in ACES, and I was trying to create the next generation of solar cells, breaking the power conversion efficiency limits by using a special type of liquid-based solar cell where you had to understand not only some solid-state physics of semiconductors, but also some electrochemistry around ions. And it's really quite challenging and really quite an interesting area of science where you're trying to couple up both traditional electronic communication with some more non-traditional ionic methods of communication. And it leads you to some really quite interesting places. So is that the type of research you could have done in Australia or it was pretty specific to going over to Japan where you did undertake that research? I think the general area, there's probably areas in Australia where you could be quite fruitful in this space. The benefit of going to Japan was that this laboratory had quite a lot of cutting edge tools, quite a, quite a large PhD cohort which are all focused on this specific area and making rapid progress in this area through a Japanese government funded program. So there was quite a lot of uh, opportunities and resources there. And of course I had the background experience of just having spent 12 months in these labs and having that familiarity there with the researchers and the research environment. Sure, and how was life in Japan? Very different, very different. Have Um, you been before? I'd never been to Japan before my trip in my PhD, um, but even returning as a staff member was quite different. 
Um, so it turned out that I became the de facto most senior researcher who was in the lab on a day-to-day -day basis. So almost from my first day out of my PhD, I was sort of thrust into this mentoring role for oncoming masters and PhD students and was running a lab wow. in a foreign language, which I didn't speak. <laughs> Can you speak Japanese now? Uh, no, it's a question I get asked a lot. And actually what ended up happening was I was asked to speak exclusively English so that all of the Japanese students could learn English from me, which I was happy to do, but it came at the cost of me learning my Japanese. So no, unfortunately, I still can't speak Japanese very well to this day. <laughs> so are you a big fan of Japanese food, ramen, sushi, that type of thing? Oh, absolutely. I think that's one of the highlights of the experience was the, the sort of cultural experience. And I always suggest to my own PhD students to this day to try and do a one to two year experience overseas where you can to experience another culture and also to prove to yourself without your familiar safety networks back here in Australia that this is indeed a, a career that you want to do. Um, but certainly I'm very keen to return to Japan at any stage I can. Uh, both for the amazing food and the amazing skiing experiences. Yeah, definitely. I can vouch for that too. I've been to Japan once before and would uh, completely agree with that statement there. <laughs> so was after your time in Japan, you were there for a year, was there a possibility of staying on or you were always going to come back to Australia? Uh, no, there was a possibility of staying on. In fact, I was offered an extension for another couple of years and I would have been very, very interested in taking it, uh, but for the small detail that I'd left a girlfriend behind in Australia when I went to Japan for a year. <laughs> and uh, she'd consulted with me and made the unilateral decision that it was about time we get married. And so I headed back to Australia um, to support that family decision and, and start a family with her. Sure, sure. And, and just to clarify, where exactly in Japan were you? Uh, I was in a small town called Waida which is about 15 minutes outside of Nagano, which is sort of the, the largest town nearby that people will, will tend to know. Right. And then you came back to Australia and moved up to Newcastle, I believe. What was the first position you undertook there? Yeah, so I was a, a postdoc researcher in Newcastle. Uh, so my wife was actually working at the John Hunter Hospital in town. So I had that family drive to be in Newcastle. But throughout the ACES PhD, I'd also um, had cause to... Um, bump into a researcher who worked at the University of Newcastle, whose name is Professor Paul Destor. And Paul works on printable electronics for solar cells. Um, so there was a natural connection there with my background. And he convinced me to come and work for him by presenting this fantastic opportunity of essentially challenging me, saying, look, for many, many years, Everybody in this field has been saying that we can upscale the printing of this technology, no problems. We can make kilometers using um, newspaper presses, standard roll-to-roll -roll printing procedures, but nobody's done it. I've just got the funding and, and built some of this equipment. Could you come on board and could you help the team to make this vision of mass-produced roll-to-roll printed electronic devices a reality? And that was a challenge that really intrigued me and, and I jumped right in. Great. And whereabouts were you doing that exactly? Um, so this is being done in Newcastle. Um, so in the at the University of Newcastle, it's the Department of uh, Mathematical and Physical Sciences. Okay, great. And then you stayed on as a, a lecturer in physics for a while after that as well? 
Yeah, that's correct. Uh, so I, I've always had a bit of a passion for teaching. Again, that, that started way back in the PhD days at, at Wollongong. And I had some, I guess, unique training in the ACES days, which was way ahead of its time. It's it's not particularly rare these days, but at the time back, or oh, going back a decade now, um, I had the opportunity to do an MBA and look into commercialization and industry pathways, essentially future careers pathways in science. We also had the opportunity to do a lot of media training, which meant that we had to really um, work on the ability to educate lay audience uh, in the areas that we were experts in. And so coupled with a little bit of undergraduate teaching that I did in Wollongong, I'd covertly developed a lot of skills which are required to be a good lecturer, at least on the teaching side of, of that job. And so when the opportunity arose to, to join the physics discipline as a lecturer, I was very keen to take that up. Great. And, you know, this is something I, I see often when I'm you know, speaking to people similar to yourself who have done a PhD. Um, you know, it's either research or and, you know, in staying in academia or it's industry. Were you always leaning towards the research and academia uh, path or was industry something that you thought about as well? Uh, that's a good question, Sam. I've been fortunate that I've worked, I would say I've worked with industry, but not for industry. Right. So in my time at Newcastle, just before I was offered this position of lecturer, most of the funding that we were generating and the projects we were working from were directly funded by industry. So we had a series of industry partners who essentially came to us and said, this printed electronics is great. It has an application in my business. Can you make device X or device Y for us? And if so, here's some money. And so it was, a, it was a nice way to see what it would be like working for industry without actually having to go outside the comfort of the, the job security of the academic realm. Uh, and so what I, what I worked out from that time is that uh, my passion was more on the fundamental material science insights and the researching and the innovation of cutting edge methods and materials rather than the sort of delivery of products that industry focuses on. And so I decided to take my career a little more in the academic pathway, although I was fortunate to build in that training of working with industry partners and sitting in boardrooms with CEOs and advocating for research projects, uh, which has become a, a really necessary skill for the modern researcher today. Definitely. Sounds like you've had the best of both worlds there. Absolutely. Yeah. I've been very fortunate. So, you know, fast forward to today uh, mm. and more recently, you've joined the University of Sydney, I believe in February this year. What's the role now? Uh, so my role at the University of Sydney is to research manage one of the largest uh, materials characterization groups in Australia. Uh, so when I was at Newcastle, I was doing the traditional route of some teaching uh, and I essentially uh, was responsible for putting together an entirely new medical physics curriculum. And in doing so, I had to read up a lot on uh, the links between biology and physics. And I got very passionate about this sort of crossover space where we can talk to cells and we can communicate with cells and we can build printable devices um, for the medical industry, detectors for radiation and so forth. Uh, and then as I started to build up my research group, uh, I was offered the opportunity to essentially port this research group over to the University of Sydney, 
and joined forces with a really large materials characterization group there, um, who's led by Professor Julie Kenny, who's the CEO for Microscopy Australia. Uh, so the facilities that we have at Sydney have half a dozen of state-of-the-art scanning electron microscopes, transmission electron microscopes, optical microscopy, x-ray wow. microscopy, an amazing, amazing suite of materials to look at atomic scale characterization of materials. And essentially, I've got the opportunity there to keep my research passion in this biomedical physics space ticking along. But I've also been given the opportunity to act as a senior mentor for all of the students and the postdocs in this group. There's about 10, 10 to 15 of those. Um, and it's it's been really, really exciting to essentially start to develop the next generation of scientific superstars and get involved in all of the amazing research that this new younger generation is now um, taking up the baton for and really leading. Sounds fantastic. So what about life outside of um, research and outside of science? What do you like to do in your spare time? Uh, so I've always been really, really keen on sports. And unfortunately, as your family life progresses, it, uh, your Saturdays get taken up. Um, and <laughs> so cr- cricket and, and, and team sports sort of slowly faded into the background. Um, but what I found is I took up a new sport, which is running. Um, and you can do this anytime, anywhere. Um, as long as you have a pair of sneakers, off you go. Um, and so what started as a hobby, um, given my sports background and my scientific mindset, actually turned into quite a keen amateur runner. And I now race marathons for fun. Great. When was the last marathon you ran? Um, it was about 12 months ago down in Melbourne. Okay, great. And how did you fare? Uh, well, it hurt a lot, but I ran a fantastic <laughs> time of two hours 40. So I was really stoked with that. Oh, very good. And that probably leads into my next question and a question that I've asked every guest that I've had on the podcast. Is there some sort of maybe morning routine or something you do each day that helps you approach your work? Well, that's a fantastic question, Sam. Uh, there is, um, and I, I probably started it without thinking too much about the fact that it was an actual specific routine for work. Um, But with the running, you're quite right, it's it's a a nice link. I do most of my running in the morning. um, And as you're running along for half an hour, an hour, if you're mad like me, you might go for two hours. (laughs) It becomes really meditative and your mind just wanders. um, And what you can do is always try and leave behind the problems of yesterday and focus on what's going to be different for the next day and how we're going to solve the challenges faced today. And so I really use it as almost a reset button every day to say, okay, whatever was bothering me yesterday is going to stay here on this run and I'm only going to take forward into today um, the thoughts and the mindsets that's going to be productive for um, moving forwards. And I found that that's a really, really useful time that, that I can't do without anymore. Definitely. And I'm curious, is the marathon the longest run you've done so far? Uh, no, I snuck in a few extra kilometers on a, on a couple of training runs. There's, um, as you progress through running, you, you think you're mad when you run your first half marathon and then someone convinces you to run a marathon and you do that and you also think you're mad. And then somebody points out that there's this world of ultra marathoning and <laughs> disappearing off into the bush and running 100 kilometers, 100 miles. Um, so that's sort of the next challenge on my bucket list. Um, and at the moment with the COVID restrictions, it's actually quite a good habit to get get into because it's the definition of social distancing. 
Uh, and so at the moment, the longest run I've done is just a tick over 50 kilometers. Wow, impressive. Well, I'm, I'm keen to hear how you go with the, um, the, the next big race. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. All right. So just to sort of um, wrap things up, I guess, is there any advice you'd maybe give to someone either thinking about doing a PhD or someone currently doing a PhD that, you know, maybe has the same sort of ambitions as yourself? Um, yeah, there's a couple of pieces of advice that I try and always pass on to my students. Uh, the first is that you're going to need to work on your resilience. It's an incredibly rewarding career path, but it can be incredibly frustrating for long periods of time. Uh, the results aren't working, the instruments are broken, there's this pressure to publish, but it's not working for me. And so you are going to be faced with an intense pressure and you really need to build in quite a strong personal resilience to be successful in this career. And so what I say to students is it really helps build resilience if you're passionate about what you do. It's not a prerequisite to love science or to love engineering to do this job, but it really helps. It really helps to drive you. Um, and so if you can couple passion and, and resilience together, then I think you've got the two um, major skills that you really need to be successful. And then the, the third skill that I encourage all of the, the students and staff starting out in this career to try and develop is networking. Uh, and fortunately for me in my days at ASIS, I learned from many masters and Gordon Wallace and David Officer and Attila Moser um, on building the importance of building up these global networks sure. um, and just how much that can help you progress your own career, but also be a resource to help other people progress their career when they need to call upon you. Uh, so that's a general advice I give to people. Yeah, some really good advice there, definitely. Um, so just lastly, I mean, you sort of spoke on what you're currently doing, but any future plans, you know, maybe something that you'll be working on towards the future? Yeah, we've got a couple of projects which I'm really excited about. Uh, so they're, they're both sort of in this medical bionic space and they're both starting to get a little bit of interest from industry players. Uh, the first one is essentially a printable x-ray detector uh, which we're hoping to develop into a patch which people can wear on their arms during cancer radiation therapy and it will really improve the tracking of the x-ray beam and the sophistication of where we deliver this really intense x-ray beam to and how we avoid the parts of the body we don't want to deliver this really intense x-ray beam to and so hopefully the outcome of that over the next few years will be to really improve cancer therapy treatments currently delivered by radiation. Um, and the other pet passion project I have is really connecting up my past with solar cells and, and printable electronics with my current passion of biomedical physics. And that is to create an artificial retina by essentially printing red, green, and blue photoactive materials into a pixelated pattern to grow uh, ganglion cells onto those uh, optically active materials and the ganglion cells is essentially the part of the eye which delivers the signal from light through to the optic nerve in the brain and so we're sort of halfway through a project where we're essentially developing an artificial retina which can go in as a simple flexible surgical implant and can restore vision in people where their retinas might be damaged uh, through retinal pigmentosis or perhaps um, through AMD. Um, so there's 
tens of millions of people in the world that suffer from that. And we're hoping that in the next couple of years, we can develop a very simple surgical solution, perhaps much the same as Fred Hollow's cataract surgery back in the day, where we can fix this disease using some of the skills and the techniques that I've picked up along the way. Fantastic. I'm definitely keen to see how that pans out. All yeah, right. so exciting field to work in. All right. Well, thanks so much for your time on the podcast. It's been a pleasure to to chat and hopefully I'll see you at ACES headquarters in the near future when this COVID situation's over and come down and give a seminar and provide the latest updates on your research. So yeah, thanks for joining. No problem, Sam. I'm looking forward to the day I can come down and catch up with everybody again. That'd be great. Thanks, Matthew. Thank you, Sam. Thanks for listening to the ACES podcast and my chat with Matthew Griffith. To listen to more episodes like this one, be sure to subscribe wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. You can also find more information about ACES on our website, electromaterials.edu.au. On our website, you'll find links to the various social media platforms we're on. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Samuel Finlay. Until next time, thanks for listening.